In this episode, I have invited two artists and educator, Dr. Tammy Wan Hubbard and Priya Srinivasan, and a psychologist, Anu Radha, to make a conversation about how the arts and artists could respond to the COVID-19 racism against the Asian population in the Western societies. In the making of this conversation, I have learned so much from those three speakers. Tammy told us about her social engagement project called Unmasked Selfie in Solidarity, which had widely reached on Facebook platform, and how her visual art practice had been enriched through her roles as a curator and academic. Prayer was her rich knowledge on Australian performance art and the subject on culture and gender equality in the post-colonial and capitalist societies, shared her view on what was the role of the arts and artists that COVID-19 had indicated to us, and her critical thoughts on how COVID-19 broke the Western traditional notion that artists are solo genius. Also, Anu, from her professional psychologist perspective, did not only give an explanation on the stress and anxiety that were brought by racism and、um, the time of COVID-19, but also shared many brilliant, valuable, and wise exercises for thoughts for the artists and everyone to practice. Of course, there are so much more in this conversation to take home. So please sit back and enjoy this empowering episode. Before getting into the episode content, I would like to apologize for the poor internet connections occurred in the conversation. As a result, a few words were cut out. But I hope those minor interruptions have very little impact on your understanding of what we said. I would like to pay respect to elders, both past, present, and emerging of Kulin Nation. Extend the respect to other Indigenous Australians. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for making Thank time and、uh, joining these conversations. It is the tradition of this podcast that I let the speakers to introduce themselves. Yeah, who would you like to go first? I'm Dr. Tammy Wong Holbert. I'm an artist, or how I describe myself is, I'm a visual artist, a curator, and also、um, an academic. So I, I'm currently a lecturer、um, at RMIT University in the School of Art, and my art making is predominantly focused around socially engaged projects, working with various urban communities and. Sort of more of a focus on、uh, immigrant communities, actually.、Um, hello to all the listeners. I'm Anu, and I'm a psychologist based in Melbourne.、Um, since completing my masters from Melbourne Uni, that was back in 2018. So at the moment, I'm working with Northern Health, which is a public health organisation serving the northern suburbs of Melbourne. And through my role、um, at Northern Health, we see. Clients from a diverse background, like 
we see clients from varying cultural and ethnic backgrounds, which is great because that gives me an opportunity to um, look at all that diversity and it's very enriching. But then again, it's quite an eye opener mm -hmm. where listening to some stories, um, it brings out the unfortunate reality that there is racism in our society at the moment. Mm -hmm. So yeah, through this podcast today, I'm hoping that I can offer some pointers about mental health and racism. Thank you. Awesome. I'm uh, Priya Srinivasan. Um, I have to say I'm a recovering academic. Uh, I call myself, I used to teach at the University of California for many years as an associate professor in critical dance studies. But um, after moving to Australia, I have to say it's been a real struggle to enter the university system here, uh, precisely because some of the things you're going to be talking about today, seeing and not just COVID racism, but mm. existing racist structures that are in all our workplaces, um, especially in the universities. Mm. So I've actually try, worked on using academic theory and training and putting it into practice, something I've done throughout my career. But after moving to Australia, it became really clear mm. that I needed to use the theoretical frameworks to look at anti-racist, intersectional feminist thinking um, bringing in post-colonial ideas and global South narratives uh, into the practice of what I see as a divide, uh, not just in the university and business sectors, but in the artistic sectors, where literally the urban center and the suburban diaspora are just completely split in terms of who has access to what kinds of uh, artistic mediums, funding, grant systems and spaces in which people can articulate. Um, I originally came from India and I came here as a young child, but when I was growing up, I was actually part of a professional Asian dance company that did both classical and contemporary work, performing at the Art Centre Melbourne, sometimes for three seasons a year, each season having 14 performances, almost sold out every season. So I really emerge from a site where I was at the center of the art scene and then coming back after my travels, I was away for 20 years, I came back to see that everything had changed. So what I've done in the last five years is to really try and um, use education, but in a subtle way so people don't know what actually is unfolding, um, to try and look at equity and social justice in, in the arts world, uh, in both sides of the equation, by working with communities and also to rethink the term community because often it's seen as a bad word in the professional arts sector. Mm. How do we change these kinds of thinking processes? Yeah, great. Wow. I think that's, I know you, so I knew you could uh, enrich this conversation a lot from your experiences and expertise. Um, again, welcome all of you for these conversations. I have to be honest to everyone that this topic is quite new to me. Um, of course, you know, like I aware of those um, injustice and uh, situation of racism situation in Australia, but because I never had a direct attack, I guess. Um, and also, you know, my art was not so necessarily directly linked to this topic. So I wasn't so confident to, to sort of form this conversation. But I think um, the reason I kind of 
a call for this competition is because it's totally because COVID-19 because at the beginning I think when when that started to happen in China uh, later last year you, I like I started to feel changes in Australia like mm -hmm. at the beginning was the the Chinatown um, the business started to close down because mm -hmm. the plunging number of customers mm -hmm. and then started sort of bleach into my social media which is Facebook and started like my friends post their personal stories of mm -hmm. receiving those racist attack in Melbourne which is like mm -hmm. so Ralph I never really heard people really directly get attacked on the street so that was built up this kind of alarming like awareness of what this Melbourne has changed into and then mm. that as like me as a Asian uh, Australian immigrant um, I started to uh, develop this kind of a fear or anxiety how would I respond if I there's lots as if if I go out how do I respond it's a similar anxiety expressed by this American writer. And mm. she precisely described that the story built up this kind of fear that you feel for potential uh, mm. of attack. Who was the writer? I'll have to find out for you. Because okay. it's uh, read from this article on New York Times. Um, mm. uh, because that's another thing I feel like I read more uh, responses from writers and from Asian American community than somehow Australia um, communities and also artists. I think somehow writers are, can immediately respond to those issues then faster than artists. But having said that, um, I would like to go straight to Tammy's project, which is, I think, your project, um, Unmasked a Selfie in Solidarities, mm -hmm. uh, uh, started a quite, you know, early stage of yes. COVID-19 um, spread out. Yeah. Can you yeah. tell us more? Sure. I guess um, something that happened before to me just before COVID-19 even broke out, this is late 2019, mm. I think there was so much tension between, like in the, in the media, we were seeing so much around um, sort of the media attacking China um, mm. to do with human rights issues and also to do with Hong Kong and the politics mm. around that. So I think there was a lot of tension already to do with China in the media and mm. to do with perceptions of Chinese people. So I actually did have um, someone at a train station in the suburbs um, call out to me and abuse me um, mm. for being Asian. And they specifically said, you know, something about me being Asian. And I was actually quite taken aback because I've never... I was born in Australia and I have rarely come across people directly confronting me um, mm. with racist issues. And I was a bit, it was actually the first time I actually reported a racist incident as well. Wow. So I went to the, I was at the train station and I went to the staff and the staff were actually really supportive mm. and they encouraged me to call, they called the police for me. Yeah, and right. yeah, asked yeah. me to report the incident and also to tell the PSO officers on staff. So mm -hmm. I, I felt extremely supported by the people that are yeah. working here in Australia. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, know that the train stations often attract people that aren't the most diplomatic and <laughs> yeah, yeah. um, yeah. But, you know, it was a bit of a surprise that I got, 
I had that yeah. experience even before COVID-19 happened. So I was a little bit wary leading into um, mm. the beginning of it. With the Unmasked Selfies in Solidarity project, that actually came out of um, conversations between the staff and the students. Mm. Um, and we, as, as it actually was a response to the travel ban being put in place um, for the Chinese students. Um, and it was just a month before they were due to arrive. So we knew that our student community would be quite affected. And I think also in the university system, international students have a very sort of difficult status, I think. Mm. They are valued economically, but not valued culturally and socially. Often, you know, there's a lot of resentment around that community. And I, I find it really frustrating that we never have conversations that go beyond that, you know, and I, I, as a staff member, I do try and actively really try and encourage our students to, you know, form communities and to be more vocal and to be represented in the community mm. and also try and show them that we value them as, mm. as a community. And so I think the internet, this particular project came out of trying to address that issue mm -hmm. and also trying to send a message to them that uh, the, the students that were having difficulty coming back, um, that we wanted to reach out to them and actually make sure they felt that they had a presence on our campus. So we started, actually, it started through a conversation between us and Sherry, who, who was in China, and she mm. was about to come back for a PhD and she was very keen to, to contact and reach out to people. So we worked with her extensively. We also have a group called the Curatorial Collective. Mostly the students are international students and they also collaborated with us and reached out to their community as well. Mm. So we had a couple of active, very proactive students go out, reaching out to, to the students that had been uh, were stuck in transit mm. in third countries. You know, some of them were even, one of my students was even stuck in Wuhan, um, mm, wow. unable to come back at all. Mm. And so we reached out to these people and they, they were really grateful that we were trying to engage them and to yeah. make sure they're okay. So it actually became more than just an art project. It was a way of actually reaching out and making sure that our community was okay mm. and it, we used we used facebook and so other social media platforms to kind of connect our community mm. and then i guess we wanted to make this not just a conversation within our school so we actually invited local students and um also our staff to actually share their their concerns for the students as well. So mm -hmm. it became, it became a two way conversation. Mm. In the first instance, it was all about the students giving them a platform for expressing their personal and emotional concerns around the situation. So a lot of the things that came out of that was their fear of racism, their fear of discrimination, mm. their fear of not being treated as an equal, um, their hopes, for the future and their concern and empathy for others as well. So I guess all those themes really kind of emanated from that process and in return, our, our community also showed their support, the, the people that were here. Mm, yeah. And then it accumulated into a, we wanted a physical presence on the campus. 
-hmm. So we, it accumulated, we printed out all the images and actually did um, a big paste up wall in building two, which is one of our main buildings. And we held an exhibition in um, building 24, small, smallish exhibition in the, in the yeah. front foyer of the School of Art building. Mm -hmm. And that was just to make sure when the students did return that they felt they were still present, even though, and yeah. in our thoughts. Yeah. When yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but Tammy, that's such a great initiative. And I think that um, in the process of spreading the message and making um, certain people be heard, the, the other good thing to come out of that was also the opportunity for them to release their emotion. Mm. Out yeah. of emotion which, yeah. if you're and that was bottling it up, the bottle's going to overflow. And yeah, that was really important. Yeah. 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 And I was just going to add and say, also visually too mm. the idea of the visual representation of these often faceless students who are often just seen as this mass of yeah. labor and economic sort of um input that they that's all they're here for usually mm. in the system yes. and sort of like the idea of making them individual yes. but also having a collective um process of visualizing them uh, and creating community online and uh, physical presence it's amazing really great work Tammy thank yeah you. thank you and yeah. I guess the other thing is we debated quite a bit as a group what we should call the project and we finally decided to call it unmasked selfies a lot of the students said to us why did you call it unmasked because they felt a lot more protected being masked up mm -hmm. and we explained to them that we were wanting to use the term unmasked because it was about it was a it became a metaphor for showing our true selves mm. showing our true emotional selves and our intimate thoughts so after they understood that i think they they understood where we were coming from with creating that yeah. platform yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, both Anu and Priya said, I think that kind of um, visualising these communities and individualities, it's the essential things about this project. So I wonder, is it, this project still going? It, it's still online. I think it yeah. had, like, it's really interesting because this COVID-19 situation just changed so quickly. Mm. We we enacted that project right back in February, right at the beginning of when we knew that it was sort of becoming more serious. And um, we did actually try to see if we could keep it going because our situation changed so much. But I think the momentum for the project sort of really happened in February mm. because it was like the sort of initial stage of it. Mm. That was an interesting to go through that process because you do realise with uh, when you do kind of viral campaigns, they kind of last for a certain period of time before another one replaces mm. the project. Mm. So I think there have been other projects that have happened since then, which mm. have different aspects mm. of racism and discrimination. Mm. So yeah, yeah, I, I yeah, I think the good things about this project, it's kind of simple in the way like uh, i mean you get people standing from the camera taking selfie which is quite common you know practice people do and then you upload it onto the facebook like a social platform and mm. it's such a quick circulating 
um, social platform. You got visual, you got this kind of formation circulation. It's, it's such a very nice marriage between this idea and then mm-hmm. using the information circulation systems. I wonder, there's a lot of, um, I'm just thinking in terms of this using art method and forms to um, pass on these political messages. From your project, it appears like a, a social media is the quite good uh, platform to do that. Mm-hmm. But I think like often I feel like back to this art and, you know, social changes, this kind of relationship. I just wondering maybe Priya, you have a more insights on that you know, would like would art still limited by its own forms? Like if the art has this kind of goal of uh, make certain social changes and uh, create a social movement, is the art is the, has the most efficient way of doing it? Um, would yeah. art still limited by its own uh, forms? I, you know what, I think that COVID has really sort of thrown the question of what is the role of the arts and the artist mm. to really a massive sort of spotlight right now. And I hear so many different perspectives on it from different artists and how people are coping mm. with isolation, with especially for dancers and musicians and theatre people who are live artists, mm. the lack of social interaction and the lack of, Um, the inability to perform and get that feedback mechanism and the energy exchange that artists and performers are so used to and missing it and then trying to replicate it online but then finding that it's not the Mm. same at all. Mm, No. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're seeing a huge amount of anxieties for young artists um, and even older artists on... Some words here are missing due to the poor internet connections. For sure. Yeah, is to create a platform for emotional, um, you know, outpouring and how do you actually get catharsis in -hmm. a way? Because the performance, live performance process offers that catharsis, but now we're just completely stopped from it. The arts and the arts institutions were the first to be cut. Like you remember, the first was the 500, uh, anyone 500. So all the arts sector was cancelled first. And there's no, there's no performing arts, yep. And there's no um, clarity on if and when that's ever going to be lifted until the virus has some kind of, um, you know, uh, antidote, you know, whatever that we're going to find. But we don't know. So this has created a huge amount of anxiety. And also a lot of people who are full-time artists have uh, suffering massive amounts of job losses, pay cuts, and then not even being able to turn to um, JobKeeper or anything like that because what they have done is immeasurable. And that's the problem. You know, the artistic product and the artistic labour isn't even considered part of the formal economy in some ways. We often see artists as just there for aesthetic decoration, you know, and art is there for entertainment. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I've been on really sort of working through probably, you know, in the last 25, 30 years is to really sort of look at how do we reimagine the role of the artist Mm -hmm. as a labourer 
or as a form of labor to bring them into the formal economy so that then we can ask these other questions, right? Which then brings us to what is the role of art? Some people will say, um, <laughs> I'll tell you, I had a really senior professor at the VCA walk out on a meeting that I was in with them at one point because I said, I think the role of the artist is improvisational and the artist has to do what is required in any given situation, not necessarily work outside of capitalism because there may be no outside of it, but to trouble capitalism and to create work and to navigate it to maximize the potential as we move into the future. Um, and so she was very angry and said that we have to really look at privileging art for art's sake. And of course, that is a very white, you know, Eurocentric aesthetic that comes from the development of how modern dance or the narrative around yeah. the white solo performer choreographer as the genius yeah. isolates um, artists as heroes. Exactly. And, and sort of really dislocates them from a sense of community. And this is the problem with modernity itself, that it isolates, right? We follow the trope of modernism to think about ourselves as individuals versus individuals who are networked inside a community. And so those of us that come from non-Western practices know this inherently, but due to colonization in some ways we've forgotten it. So for me, returning to the idea of social justice through the arts, it's not something different. It is not to say... You cannot have art for art's sake. There is never art for art's sake. It is always within a larger cultural, political, social narrative. It's just that white supremacy and white exceptionalism privileges the idea that somehow you can exist outside of discourse or you can exist within a discourse that only privileges the solo individual subject. So that is why a white person can actually say we can look at art for art's sake and also say that community art is you know not good enough because it doesn't privilege you know the the idea of you have not committed to the artistic practice in the way that we have defined it right mm -hmm. so so for, for me I don't buy that at all and mm -hmm. I really think everything we're doing is already always political Mm. Hello, a fantastic Asian American um, scholar talked about this, that we are always already political. The cultural is the political, but somehow for Asian Australians and Asian um, Americans, Asian Canadians, we sort of get pitched as, at this model minority kind of scenario mm. and we don't actually see oh, trouble. Mm. Yeah. We don't actually see the trouble of um, what that means of putting us in that category of the model and how do we actually navigate ourselves in that model structure somehow as if culture and politics are dislocated from race, from gender, from class, from whatever social locations we are inside of where we are already always walking discourses of intersectional politics but we're made to think somehow we're not. Mm. So for me, the art, the role of the artist is always already for social justice, for equity, for community engagement in the network. We're never outside of it. And if we yeah. pretend that we are, 
that is why we get into the problems that we do. And COVID has just exposed what already exists for many of us. Just brought it to the fore. And it's just made it very visual and very stark in terms of the failure of capitalism, the failure of equal wage, the failure of having everybody actually have food and um, work on the table for them. Uh, that the whole thing has just been exposed, but it, it's not that it didn't exist. And in a way for us to be isolated and to be in our own spaces, we are now seeing as if the veil that was there before has been lifted. Mm. So for me, I growing up here, I was always subject to racism. Um, it was always a racist engagement uh, for me from the moment I landed. It was always like that. But I learned to make it something that was useful for me in the long term. I, I, I strengthened myself from knowing um, that what this was, what people said that I was, and not to actually accept that and to create my own narratives for mm. myself. So it's I, I feel like um, when I see, for example, the right now, the sort of racism against Asian Australians, which existed even before and has always existed, like the Chinese body or the Asian body has never been able to be absorbed into mainstream um, logic of who gets to be citizen. We've known this from the gold fields. We've known this from before. And, and this is similar to other Asians as well, South Asians, Southeast Asians, mm. East Asians. We've all had these kinds of unassimilable projects, which is what white Australia policy was really about, to say we want to extract your labour, but we don't actually want to give you citizenship rights. Accepting migrants as humans, basically. Exactly. And so coming back to 2020, that is what the failure of the citizenship project is actually exposing now. Mm-hmm. Whether it's international students facing racism, whether it's really, um, you know, our own citizens, you know, Australian citizens who are Asian or otherwise facing racism in different ways. I just think that it's revealed it much more in an um, easier way than existed before. So the role of the artist for me is to really work through intersectional thinking around what is all kinds of attacks on you, not just racism, but what, what does it mean when you are facing domestic violence? Mm. Now, there's more than ever domestic violence and gender violence. What happens when we think about class differences mm. uh, and in the Indian context, caste differences? Uh, so, and what about LGBTQIA plus issues, right? Mm. So really... The goal for us now as artists and as citizens is to allow ourselves to understand the complexity of racism as an intersectional form of um, bias Mm -hmm. and to work collectively and in solidarity towards transforming that through our artistic practices. Mm. And the legacy of power structures. Yeah. From colonial structures. Yeah. Yeah. So it's easy to just sweep everything under the carpet and pretend that nothing's happening or avoid that topic. But Mm. when something like COVID happens to society, yeah, like Priya said, the veil is lifted and then there's no running away from that. It just hits you in the face. Like these Mm. are the realities. Mm. Yeah, I actually would like to bring the, the, the topic down more practical matters, which is, I guess, a prayer you practice as a dancer which is 
I think the art form itself uh, has a lot of collaborative element to it. I guess me as a visual artist, um, lots of processes take a place in quite um, solitary uh, space and moment. Uh, in that sense, you know, I could say that perhaps, you know, as you say, agree, like um, my role already have attached this political uh, status. The role of artist already uh, has this recalcitrant sort of role to against the existing power systems. But then uh, think of back inward, my creative freedom become my tool uh, to self-expressions to in general sense you know fight against uh, the injustice systems around me but i guess you know because it's it's a sort of like a, um the process is so in like it's a often to be inward and solitary so i wonder <clears throat> that kind of impacts i mean i'm just trying to think that you know because i think if you um have the, the the fight against the systems and you know injustice it seems uh often invisible you know not as like a you know when you do a like a tammy's project that that you you visualize more like it's a huge collaborations the process and the ideas uh has more social impact than individual sort of moment in your studios um and then your topics might not necessarily directly be attacking those issues so i'm just wondering how could those individual uh, visual artists and uh, justify their you know those kind of private moments and still be true into their um own artistic interest and still having mm -hmm. this mentality of joining this kind of big the community of fighting against mm -hmm. like the social injustice and then um the capitalisms and those things as yeah. individuals how can you balance or how can you find your own position yeah. within this big social battles and also still be confident and yeah. be satisfying with your own you know um artistic interest and practice can i make a yeah make yeah yeah go for it yeah um, because i'm coming from a visual arts background as well yeah. and some of the things that Priya mentioned about the the hero the hero modernist artists mm. um, is something that I'm dealing with all the time in in the way we're educating our art students. Mm. Um, and I guess you know it is still kind of a new idea thinking about the artists in relation to community in the university sector that is still an emerging kind of art practice. Um, but I. I totally agree with you that there is still a need for the development of the artists to you know work through their own thoughts and i think that there are many roles that artists play in society and there is a place for the more quiet contemplation that that you have which um is more personal and more about your own situation but I also think, I, I'm just thinking about my own practice and how I do often quite clearly try and articulate that there are different modes of working as a visual artist. And predominantly, my, a lot of my work has been with collaborations with bigger groups of 
communities um, and in particular non-artists, people that aren't trained in the arts. Um, but then I also work in a very um, private way as well and make my own work which explores my own issues. But quite often I find that those issues that come out of my own practice actually feed the bigger social issues that I'm working on with bigger groups of people. And for instance, I'm very interested in Australian Chinese history and the community's history and how in my own family, it's actually, we've been quite, because um, my family's been here for five generations, there's actually um, a lot of linkages to bigger social issues through that history and through the different developments that have happened. So all of that research that I do in my own personal space quite often feeds back into those bigger social projects that I work with particular immigrant communities. I mean, in particular, the I guess the, the response that I had with the Unmasked Selfies project with the responding to the travel ban, huge interest I had in developing that project really stemmed from the fact that I know how my family's been impacted by immigration restrictions on families that have actually really been quite destructive and you know racist policy basically through the white Australia period and I've made work in my a personal work to do with that to respond to those sorts of past family histories but I can see it happening again today mm. um, on that legacy mm. and so um, and then quite you know when I've got my curatorial hat on that research is actually also informing working with the communities and working on my own actually also informs working with other artists and actually recognizing some of the thematic issues that are that are concerning them as well so i think that it all kind of feeds each other and mm. there's a need for that quiet contemplation on your own but that can actually have an impact on how you work with mm. other people as well mm. Yeah, using those values and those personal beliefs that you have and really channeling them towards the betterment of the wider society. Mm. Yeah, it, it does make sense. I think everything is connected. But I guess another sort of my curiosity is falling to, you know, as individual artists, should we carry this sense of responsibility with us? Like, should we carry this, like, uh the role as a a fighter you know a role of you know with this potential for changing the, the drive to change this social cultures and enlarge should we carry this thinking and responsibility into our practice like the the solitary moment the the, the com contemplations like how big that percentage should be in the thinking of art making and producing and seeing I have a couple of thoughts about that which is yeah. I think the answer that you're looking for is that it depends mm. and that it depends on the situation mm. it depends on the nature of the work that you want to do mm. but in by and large what I feel is missing in Australia in the art scene is the attention to the political mm. I really feel especially in dance music and theatre, the performing arts. I think less so in the visual arts, mm. but I think definitely in the performing arts, we are missing that critical 
political thinking on why the art actually matters and why should it matter, right? Mm. So if you were a performing artist, I would say, I think right now you need to train yourself to actually think about how your work is matters politically and whatever the work that you're doing, it's not that you have to change what you're doing, mm. but to actually just be aware of its larger context mm. is that's really what I'm saying. Mm. But in terms of your particular question, I think also it's about decolonizing mm. in a way, this idea that you're, you're by yourself is in, in, in a sense, a bit of a falseness. It's a falsity. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a falsity, as I said, coming back to the idea, a Western Eurocentric logic that the artist actually is a solo individual. Mm -hmm. uh, you're not. You're actually always embedded in community engagement, whether you realize it or not. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the work that you do has consequences in the networks that it impacts, right? Mm -hmm. So that's actually a false thinking, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. to think that you're actually on your own. But I would like to differentiate and say what Tammy is talking about in terms of contemplative time, like thinking through what it is that you're doing, is a different thing to understanding yourself as separated from others. Mm. To actually have time to yourself to shape your thinking and your processes and art making, mm. that's not a bad thing. And I think COVID is giving performing artists this time right now to do something they don't tend to do as much because there's always these other things going on. So in a sense, the performing artist is being given what visual artists have are always used to. Right. And, but I still say it's a false narrative to think that you are on your own. Mm. There is no on your own. Yeah. And I'll, I'll add to that a bit, Priya, um, like just taking a, a, an evolutionary or a psychological perspective on this going back millions of years um, where your, your safety and your existence depended on being part of a society. Like when um, human beings came together and started living in societies and settling down, mm -hmm. your existence depended on that and that sense of belonging and feeling like there's people and support systems around you. That's been ingrained in us since, since, I mean, forever, really. Mm -hmm. So like you said, now to think of yourself as removed or to think of yourself as an individual, that goes against the very existence. Mm. I would say of being a human being. Yeah. And COVID and, is also showing us this. That's right. That's right. The virus isn't going to differentiate and it all depends on are we all going to collectively agree mm. yeah. things yeah. to support each other, even at the cost of our own income loss of different kinds yeah. in order for all of us to survive? Are we going to... Are we a bit, this is what brings out the whole idea of the social contract in a way. The COVID crisis is allowing us to think about that. Yeah. Mm, yeah. yeah I yeah. wanted to ask you in relation, you mentioned in your art form and dance and, the, and generally the performing arts. Do you think um, the fact that there's that other perception of it being an entertaining art form um, has an impact on the criticality of it? Absolutely. I think that because we have so many different strands within the forms and we've also had different histories 
of the different practices, what their purpose is. Uh, dancers uh, function in society, dancers um, who have looked at professionalizing and putting it on the stage uh, in the theater, dance as, um, you know, on film and the, the development of something like Bollywood. There's mm. also dance and as folk dance, you know, mm. that's also commodified and whatever. So I think it's had a lot of different functions over time. Mm. And therefore, it's probably only in the 20th century that we see it in a Western sense develop in the ways that it has onto the modern theatre platform. Mm. But in most other cultures, dance always existed within other functions of society mm. and dancers were part of society in, in the Indian context. Um, the dancers who were the hereditary artists were linked to the temple as ritual workers, mm. but also um, had very sort of open sexualities and lives and, and, and had relationships with different men at different moments, and lived in matriarchal structures. Mm. They were part of births, deaths, weddings, everything. They were, so dance was not this outside thing. Yeah. And that's what I think we have really forgotten in a way. Mm. How to continue being critical in our practice mm. while remaining within community mm. to actually have roles inside the community. This, I think, is what mm. uh, us being colonised Mm. and adopting Western modes of thinking around this, we've also bought into this lie in a way. Mm. And for me, the community engagement that I do is really to expose the lie and the contradiction of so-called professional art versus community art and mm. how do we just split those assumptions aside. Mm -hmm. um, and seeing, just to like give you a practical sense, the work that I'm doing right now, uh, which is called Pathways, which brings nine South Asian artists trained in their classical forms of dance and music, but mm -hmm. most of them have training for over 15 years, right? Mm -hmm. But they have no pathways. Mm -hmm. They don't, they can't get into, they can't, most of them can't do VCE music or dance. Only now it's emerging as a possibility to have their art in that space. They can't go to the VCA because the VCA doesn't accept it unless they're contemporary or experimental. Um, and then mainstream producers and institutions don't accept the work because it's not considered what they think is experimental. So what, what we've done, um, my collaborator, Hari Sivanesan and myself, is to actually create pathways for these people to say, how do you keep your forms? But how do you just repackage it in different ways? And how do we professionalize you in ways that can be understood by the larger sector to take your work seriously? Because fifth cannot just be swept under the rug, dismissed mm. as... Oh, you cut out a bit. <laughs> yeah. Just the last part where I was just saying yeah. to give the pathways to enter um, on the same platform 
So yeah, like I just from what you just said to the pathway project, I just want to you know understand fully. You you sort of gave opportunity for um, those participants to develop their existing um, practice, which is uh, uh, overlooked by the lots of mainstream art uh, platforms, and sort of gave them to develop further. What's the goal of development? Are you trying to uh, make those practice? become uh, more accessible in the way that the the larger uh, a social platform can understand or can you be more clear? Yeah. So there's many goals. The mm. first is to actually build internal confidence within them mm. because, uh, you know, those of us that are coming from other cultures, we often grow up with a double identity, a doubleness where our own sort of other heritage kind of gets buried because we're often embarrassed about it and we often can only exhibit our community traits within community and we don't feel comfortable in our white mainstream existence to display our what we think of as our cutoff like our we've created this divide between what is our community behavior and what's the outside behavior the inside versus the outside, we've fragmented it, right? Yeah. So in a way, that's also what's happened with these art practices. With they, It's fragmented in that these artistic practices stay within community and don't get actually come out. So in a way, people, these youngsters are exhibiting a doubleness, a doubleness to their lives that doesn't actually get resolved. So again, the purpose, the main purpose is a cathartic process to integrate these two selves that are often seen as the inside self and the outside self yeah. and how to actually make that inside self feel reconciled and proud, proud. of what, what it is, you know, yeah. and to not have to hide it mm. in yeah. a way. Yeah. So all we're doing is actually giving frameworks to enable that inside self to be exposed to the outside without changing itself in any essential ways. But just to give it vocabulary yeah. and sort of a framing device, almost like a cocoon that enables them to go, oh, I don't have to let all that go in order to be experimental and contemporary. Actually, what I'm doing is just using these practices that are inside my body and inside my psyche. I'm just packaging it slightly differently to enable this thing. Now, we don't tell them all this, but this is my sort of, um, framework yeah. to think about how to first of all integrate their multiple selves together number one mm -hmm. number two it's to also give them the confidence to say we can now push with the mainstream sector on our own terms we are not going to become and do contemporary western dance or contemporary western music in order to be contemporary we stand in our own right in our own power but we're just translating ourselves in a way that will reach a wide range of communities. And it isn't just about reaching white communities. That's the biggest thing. One of the things I want is for us to be able to connect across uh, people of colour, mm. First Nations people. Mm. We actually have far more power if we're not looking at the mainstream just because it is controlled by white, the white sector that leaves out so many other communities who actually we deeply engage with more. Mm. That's why I work with First Nations artists. 
That's my work interculturally with other Asian artists, with, um, you know, Middle Eastern artists, you name it. Mm. We have more in terms of uh, intercultural engagement. So that's the second narrative, to not always be in relation to whiteness and what the white mainstream sector is expecting, mm. but to actually do other things. Mm. And then lastly, it is also simultaneously to sell it to the mainstream sector. So what I'm saying is I'm not saying we can step outside of the capital system or the power system. We are inside it. But how do we get there by sticking to ourselves, our, our sort of inner core of selves, and actually only, it's kind of like not necessarily changing your practice, but just changing the terms of engagement of it. Mm. I feel and like, yeah, you, the tools. yeah, you're actually empowering this existing um, practice. And also by empowering them, you create this new, um, new value systems for um, those practice of what you do. And then and the, this new value system is really up against the existing, the value system. And that's also like a, it's also, yeah, my concern about the criticism, you know, the, the measurement of criticism in the art forms. Although I was saying like, you know, making artists sort of uh, waste this kind of um, your own contemplation times and making and sometimes it's individual act. But once you delivered, like as a visual artist, once you delivered as in exhibitions, you mm. kind of get yourself into this uh, judging systems, like uh, mm. evaluation systems. And uh, at the same time, this system was kind of, as you said, uh, prayer, like it's a very uh, dominant, this value of Western art history, traditions and contemporary um, culture. I guess, you know, what you described is like, no, we're not going to comply with it. Like, so we're just going to value what we have and create a new sort of like a attentions and a new way of looking at um, a different way of looking at those works and see a different value from it. So, yeah, yeah I think that, but I, but I will say though, that mm. that is not to look at ourselves as somehow perfect because immigrant nostalgia is one of the most heinous forms mm. of engagement with oneself. Mm. And, we have so much internalized racism, um, not just to ourselves, but to other communities. Mm. So part of the process is to also critique the system we've been taught mm. to not necessarily bring the, the biases that mm. are taught to us by our gurus, who, by the way, are so powerful in our systems mm. and dominate our thought processes, mm. but to actually take what's good Mm. and what's critical mm. that next step and to try and sort of unlearn those problems of hierarchy power mm. and you know um pro yeah i mean those kinds of things where we have to critically look internally and say this is not going to be useful if i bring this idea into this particular space mm. so to critically evaluate ourselves also as racist you know, misogynistic, patriarchal systems and colonized minds in so many ways and to actually rethink all of that and unlearn 
those mm-hmm. I'm learning it the hardest isn't it <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh, yeah I think uh, it, like it is even like just thinking about a lots of um ideas and concept it's really hard to think out of the boxes well just just the thinking about you know the idea of the beauty the idea of you know pleasure it's lots of those kind of notion was so happened in this kind of internal space how do you criticize this you know this kind of internal concept and notion is really difficult actually to really you know you have to step out this kind of so-called self and then look back but then this looking back process again is very complex (laughs) you know you can't it's hard to find a fixed point to stand it on and then being able to make this vision like it's just just I just feel like um, uh, the, uh, when you're actually trying to practice the theories, it's actually, there's a lots of challenges and, you know, maybe self-learning process to mm. go through. Yeah. And um, oh. hardship, I think, too, in mm. accepting mm. perhaps that is the perspective that you took. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And especially, I think, like, I uh, for me, like, I... I, you know surprisingly I've been influenced so much by this kind of western thinking about arts and because that's the you know like where the, the education's um systems been like so you know you, I go through all the masters and things so uh, you know unconsciously I already you know sort of uh framed into that kind of thinking the way mm-hmm. you know that framed into this concept so sometimes I can't really separate which one is which is like is mm-hmm. my thinking is like uh, it's you know restored on me or maybe there was so nothing really really that clear like in that kind of unclear thoughts and um, multi influenced mind like how can you practice this as self-criticism and I think yeah it's 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 a quiet process I think is well-being yeah it's 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 definitely a challenging psychological skill to develop I would say and Mm -hmm. it's very important to to know when you are internalizing um like emotions like guilt or shame or Mm. all those sorts of things it's 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 a great process of of um self-reflection to think on those thoughts but i think that the boundary gets really murky when you start internalizing all of that so it's important to critique your thoughts but remembering that they are just your thoughts they Mm. are not you they are Mm. not you they are your thoughts your thoughts don't make you it's important to separate that if you start internalizing that if you start criticizing yourself mm. then that's just going to create more challenges and more problems so yeah, the, yeah reflection asking yourself all of those questions looking in and really introspecting on your thoughts mm. that's actually a very great thing to do but mm. remembering that there's still that line between you and your thoughts Mm, yeah, they don't make you. Yeah. yeah, your thoughts are not real. Yeah, I often yeah. think about that a lot. Um, how you have particular thoughts and you're obsessed with particular ideas, but then mm. sometimes you forget them and then you have to rebuild them and they might be different yeah. from what you've what you thought in the past right that's right our thoughts are ever changing our thoughts are they always yeah yeah definitely i think like um i've you know just to add a bit more about 
my personal history, you know, grew up in, you know, communist Chinese societies and, and then migrate to Australia, which is very Western uh, society and thinking. And, uh, you know, my thoughts definitely change <laughs> a lot. You know? um, so, you know, but then, yeah, like uh, the, the value system certainly has, system has changed. Um, how do I look at the things um, it's completely different from how I saw the things before. I, I don't know. I think sometimes I still do think that was with this change of thoughts and kind of made the changes to myself and also, you know, my practice. But I guess, you know, I think that it is really practical um, thing to do, which is kind of know how to separate this, the, the yeah. moments comes up and how to separate it. Because I, that's why I'm going to, use one of my friends um, example that she has been quite uh, proactively uh, picking out those racism um, uh, you know uh, events and saying statements through her social media but but then at the same time she suffers so much herself um, yeah. that uh, she you know mentally you know feel you know couldn't yeah cope with those like racist are saying and comments on her social medias. So she somehow entangled herself into this kind of battle that which is herself couldn't, psychologically couldn't, she couldn't handle it. So she, yeah. yeah. And it's important to understand why that happens. So if we look at us, we have this hierarchy of needs, yeah, mm. for us to feel safe and secure. So in that hierarchy of needs, at the very bottom, think of it as a pyramid. So at the very bottom, we have these physiological needs where it's food or hunger or thirst. So we have to have food or water or shelter, like these basic physiological needs that have to be met. That's the very bottom of the pyramid. That's important for us. Yeah. The next step is the need for safety. And when we say the need for safety, that means need for personal safety or financial safety or emotional safety. So in these COVID times, what's happened is especially with um, the um, racism against the Asian population is mm -hmm. that very bottom, um, second from bottom rung has been attacked. Your personal mm -hmm. safety has been threatened. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, the, the, the rest of the of the pyramid is very shaky because your very foundation is being attacked mm -hmm. for no fault of yours. And, mm -hmm. and when that happens, yeah, I mean, people start internalizing that because mm -hmm. your, your whole identity is built on your culture and your background and your heritage. Everything that you've experienced from a young age, mm -hmm. everything that you've been brought up with is now in the line of fire. Mm -hmm. So... No wonder that that leads to psychological distress. And it's, it's very natural. Those emotions that we feel, sadness, hurt, anger, shame, guilt, these are all emotions. They're very natural experiences. Those emotions, what we know in and of themselves, are not bad. Mm. What emotions do is they, they give us this hint. They convey something to us. When we feel emotion, it, it, we feel emotion because it's meant to then help us take some action. Mm -hmm. So when we feel sad, that's a signal to us that, hang on, I'm feeling sad. What's happening here? How can I, how can I act on this? So our emotions are there to help us act and take, take some action. So that's where they stem from, feeling sad or feeling, feeling shame or feeling anger. In and of itself, these experiences are not bad. They're actually very helpful for us.
Mm. They give us direction. They, they show us what we should be doing. They guide our behavior. Mm. And then what happens is we then look out for avenues to cope with that because, of course, it makes us feel unpleasant mm. and we want to come back to that feeling of homeostasis or we want to come back to that feeling of calm. Mm. So that motivates us to then seek help. Now, some people might turn to unhelpful coping styles like drinking or drugs or isolation or withdrawing as a way to try and restore that calm. But we know that that can be unhelpful. Whereas mm. if you speak to family or friends or a mental health professional or you use art, that's a very big thing to express your emotions, to get it out there. Whatever avenue helps to restore that calm, that's what emotions are there for. The bottom line there is, yeah, your personal existence, your safety is being attacked. The rest of your foundation, the rest of your pyramid, I'm sorry, is, is quite shaky because your foundation has been attacked. And going back to, to what you spoke about seeing earlier is what COVID-19 has really done is it's, it's really shaken these societal bonds. It's broken down that, that sense of normalcy or familiarity that we have that keeps us feeling safe and secure in our cocoon, even though those particular issues were still out there but hidden, that was what is familiar to us. So when that is shaken, mm. that brings out this, this sense of unfamiliarity, really. Mm. Mm. Um, and again, our thoughts and our minds, these are um, our mind especially is like this threat detection system. We think of it as the as the fire alarms in our house when there's smoke or when there's a threat of, of a fire, mm. the fire alarm goes off. That's to signal that hang on, something's off here and we need to move to safety. Mm. That's what our mind does. Our mind has evolved to be a threat detection system. Mm. When when our familiarity changes, when our habit, when our routines change, mm. or when say um, you find yourself to be an unfortunate victim of a racist attack when your safety is threatened, mm. our mind switches on. It's constantly on the lookout for, for avenues that could potentially pose a threat to you. Mm -hmm. So if everything's hunky-dory and gray, we're fine. Nobody gives it a second thought. Life just cruises on. But mm. when there's potential threats around, our mind is constantly on the lookout for that. And it's exhausting. Yeah, and when your 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 self concept and your self identity are attacked, because racism is that it's an attack on on your existence. Mm. When that happens, then the initial reaction is is to move to safety. Mm. I guess you know, like you said, you've been working through COVID time, mm. and um, uh, do you feel like uh, your clients, um, the issues they have? are kind of different from pre-COVID time? Like, do you get, like, a specific... Yeah, yeah, definitely. The biggest thing that we've seen is anxiety, anxiety mm. and fear, mm. again, which is a very common reaction um, mm. given what's happening at the moment. Mm. And the other biggest thing I would say is, is um, uncertainty and disempowerment, mm. where people don't know how long this is going to go on for and that fear that or that anxiety that stems from that uncertainty is huge mm. as human beings we love control mm. we will, yeah and at the moment there is no control 
Mm. And just for life in general, I mean, control, what is control? Can we ever control everything? All of these mm. questions that yeah. make us really antsy and uncomfortable are brought to the yeah. fore. So definitely, I mean, along with um, uh, routine presentations that we see at the moment, low mood and anxiety is the biggest thing. So what would uh, advice you usually gave to those people? There's various things that you can do. Um, now, you can either, these are the two main things, you can either go out and solve the problem mm. or you can cope with the emotions that result mm. um, out of the problem because we can't go out and fix COVID at the moment. Mm. So problem solving is not the, the best option here. Mm. So what people can do is to just give yourself permission to feel what you're feeling, mm. whether you're feeling anger or whether you're feeling hurt or whether you're feeling mm. sadness. These emotions in and of themselves, they're not bad emotions. That's what society mm. has ingrained in us. Anger is bad. Sadness is weak. Mm. That's not true. So give mm. yourself permission. It's unlearning those social messages that we've received yeah. and just give yourself permission to feel what you're feeling at the moment. Yeah. Really. If and that's correct to like interpret what you said is kind of like you give yourself a break time from yeah. life and, a, and then in this break yeah. time you allow yourself freely express yourself and that's um, right that's know. right and yeah. you can do things like going back to your hobbies do things that you've previously enjoyed or I know, I, um, talk to friends mm. i was just going to say when i we first went into lockdown yeah um, i felt an incredible sense of grief actually that's mm. right yeah yeah knowing that Things are going to permanent, probably for quite some time, be a little bit different from what we've known it as. Yeah, and yeah, I yeah. You find that quite difficult to, of course. I mean, even to recognise that that was the feeling that I was having. That's right. Um, yeah, because we don't ma mainstream um, grief is thought of as when you lose a loved one or or when you've lost a very dear possession. Mm. But grief and loss, as we understand it, it, it it's it's a very wide emotional experience change of your routine lifestyle that's a loss grief can step mm. out stem out of that as well so that's a very good point that you raised yeah. I mean, um, and it's it's a very difficult one for people to pick up as mm. well because it can be very easily misinterpreted as sadness yes i i didn't i remember i had that just feeling of enormous pressure yeah for quite yeah. some weeks yeah. and I, yeah. I didn't know what to do with that feeling because it wasn't something that you regularly right. feel I think yeah and and the other technique that we also use and I'm sure the artists will appreciate this is to help people understand their emotional journey better we do help we do um, encourage them to think about our emotions as as shapes and colors like what does that if you were to draw out your grief what or or um, what shape would signify that emotion? So really get them to start visualizing their emotions because that is an easier way for people to understand what they're going through at the moment. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, going back to routines and structures and what is familiar. So even mm -hmm. if you're working from home, get up at your routine time, have a shower, um, separate your desk or workspace from your bedroom, don't sit in work. So having your routine... Some people. Sorry? 
It's been challenging for some people. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and of course, I'm not bottling it up. That's the mm. biggest um, advice that I would give is share this, share your experiences. We're all in the same boat at the moment. Mm. And the other thing is also to imagine like you're riding a wave, like you're surfing and riding a wave. COVID is not going to be here forever. I know everyone's been saying this, it's easier said than done, but really thinking of this as an evolving experience where there's light at the end of the tunnel, um, this is not going to last forever, reflecting back on how you've overcome challenges in the past, what are your own strengths, how can you use them in this time? Because when our emotions are heightened, our ability to think rationally or our ability to think logically, that's quite compromised. Yeah. So give yourself permission to feel what you're feeling, do relaxing activities around the house and just help yourself to just return back to your calm whenever that happens. Don't force yourself. The more you try to push against something, it's going to come back. It's like the, the, the elephant in the room. The more you don't want to think about it, you know it's there. Yeah. That's the hardest thing for people. Give yourself permission <laughs> to feel what you're feeling. Thanks for the advice. I think they're really valuable. I think, you know, uh, you're completely right. Like you just kind of um, give yourself a bit of break times and, you know, maybe maybe set up new routines and, you know. Um, right. Um, yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, and I think I still really um, appreciate your early advice that separate, try to separate sometimes the, the thoughts and the idea of yourself. Mm. I think that that's really, yeah. I, I think I take that the most. <laughs> and yeah. Then, um, sure. yeah, your thoughts are just your thoughts. Just because someone, just because you think that, oh, I'm a bad person doesn't make you a bad person. It's just a mm. thought. Our thoughts always come and go. Yeah. Mm. And I think that's really also great like psychological exercise for people who you know not just artists and but you know the people who are in the front line of in these kind of tough battles um mm. you know against all those um big challenging social change and mm. you know um this the social political structure it's kind of important to uh, make herself strong first i guess that's you know prayer yeah. what you been doing for those participants to how to build a right value systems to yourself first and then from that yeah. um, reaching out I think and also you know the sense of um, a community and making community like a back to Tammy's your project I think that's perfect example of you know through the form art and build a, yeah. a community for everyone and, and then empowering everybody um so still there and building too so when we go back to campus and also you know create that kind of visual presentation of that community yeah that's 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 i think yeah. that's the art yeah and again i think um given all, all the speakers here today i'm the only one from a non-arts background <laughs> but in preparation of of our conversation today i was actually reading something yesterday this is by an american philosopher activist and poet 
May, apologies if I say his name wrong, but Camilo Macbeca. And I was reading up on one of um, one of his articles yesterday. And as a person from a non-arts background, what really struck a chord with me was um, he was speaking about arts as, as contributing to society. Like there's a moral duty to always contribute and to express your values and your beliefs, but not in a way where you're not taking something away from mm. someone else mm. without oppressing somebody else. How do you contribute and put something out there in the world? So that's what really struck a chord with me. Mm. And the, the, the little experience that I've had with art so far is, is that yes, as a person, I've really enjoyed learning Mm. and really um what's the word i'm looking for malleable mm. like arts to me is, is a very malleable and creative experience where i'm constantly mm. looking for for more mm. whether it be whether it be dance or, or theater or the visual arts or, or cinema or whatever i'm looking for more mm. but in a way that it's not taking away from anything else what really struck struck a chord with me yeah i guess as we you know priya me and tammy we we artists it's a it's a continued evolving process like mm. yeah we we gave more but then we during the creation we also uh taking from others uh as mm. a player said like the idea of a community you know like nothing is really isolated like we're taking from others and then it's, it's kind of keep rolling sort of process um, yeah. to, in, in order to, to yeah. create something new to the society. I guess in that form, again, yeah. back to prayer said, it is already political. <laughs> it's really That's a political, right. political yeah. form as an artist. I, I really have to wrap this up. It's, I learned a lot from all of you and thanks for you. your contribution and ideas and thoughts and yeah, thanks again, and I hope um, hope you all stay well and safe. And uh, yeah, hopefully um, this restriction will slowly lift up one by one, and then we all can meet in person sometime. <laughs> uh, I can't wait to let this conversation out in the world, and um, you know, hopefully more people get to learn from what you always said, or oh, or nothing. I don't know. <laughs> um, Okay, all right. Oh, thank you. Have your mornings and Sundays, and yeah, yeah. Bye bye. The soundtrack is created by Marcel Fairfair. The graphic is designed by Emmanuel Rodriguez. Stay safe and well. I will meet you next time.